Welcome to LSE. Welcome to tonight's event. Uh, tonight we're going to boldly go where no literary festival has gone before. Thank you. And discuss the connection between the sci-fi world of Star Trek and our world. Uh, if you haven't heard of us before, this is, the, this is LSE's eighth uh, Space for Thought Literary Festival. Uh, the theme this year is Utopias. It's been carrying on all week. Uh, and if you have a good time, you can come back tomorrow. It's going to start fresh tomorrow at 11 a.m. And there's programs outside for you to pick up on the way out. Uh, so this event in particular is to celebrate the 50th anniversary of Star Trek. Uh, we'd like to think tonight about what it tells us about society, about international relations, and even about the scientific method. Uh, if you're uh, a tweeting trekker, there is a hashtag, which you can find here, LSE LitFest. Uh, also, we have a policy. Uh, when people's phones go off, we immediately transport you to a Klingon prison. <laughs> so please turn off your phones. Uh, this entire event is being recorded. Uh, now, that means that there may or may not be a podcast contingent on possible disruptions by tribbles and other things that live in the audio equipment. Uh, and so I, what, I'd like, what I'd now like to do is introduce our speakers. Um, but first, my name is Brian Roberts. Uh, I'm an assistant professor here in uh, the Department of Philosophy, Logic, and Scientific Method. I'm a philosopher of physics. I work on philosophy and I work on physics together. Uh, and I'm very pleased to introduce here our panel. Uh, the, the lectures are going to begin with Professor Michelle Barrett. Uh, she's a professor of modern literary and cultural theory at Queen Mary University. Uh, she's an author uh, and authored a book with her son, uh, Duncan, who's also here with us, uh, called Star Trek, The Human Frontier. Uh, now, let's see. Her, her recent work is focused on literature and art in the, in the First World War period. Uh, and her son, Duncan Barrett, is also a best, is a best-selling author. Uh, in 2010, he edited the First, uh, the First World War Memoirs of a Pacifist and a Saboteur named Ronald Skirth, and that's published as The Reluctant Tommy. Uh, and his 2014 book, Men of Letters, uh, The Post Office Heroes Who Fought the Great War, was nominated for the People's Book Prize. Uh, he's an author with Noala Calvi of uh, The Sugar Girls, of G.I. Brides, and The Girls Who Went to War. And together, the Barretts are going to tell us a bit about the connections between Star Trek and the nautical uh, exploration and defense. Uh, the speaker after that is going to be uh, Stephen French, who is a professor of philosophy of science at the University of Leeds. He is a fellow philosopher of physics, like me. Uh, for years, he's been the leader in the topic of structural realism, or the structure that underpins modern physics, and especially quantum theory. His recent book gives the definitive account of this view. It's called The Structure of the World, Metaphysics and Representation. He is the co-editor-in-chief of the British Journal for the Philosophy of Science, which is one of the top journals in philosophy of science, perhaps the top journal in philosophy of science, we like to think. Uh, and uh, he's the editor of a Macmillan Palgrave series called New Directions in Philosophy of Science. Uh, he's here to talk to us tonight about uh, Star Trek from the perspective of the scientific method. And finally, our last speaker will be uh, Professor Barry Busan. Uh, he is an emeritus professor of international relations here at LSE. He's formerly the Montague Burton Professor. Uh, he's also an honorary professor at Copenhagen Jilin uh, and at China Foreign Affairs Universities. He's also a senior fellow at LSE Ideas and a fellow of the British Academy. He's co he has written, co-authored, or edited over 25 books and numerous articles. I'd just like to mention that he is the author of one particular article called America in Space, The International Relations of Star Trek and Battlestar Galactica. Uh, and his most recent book with George Lawson uh, is The Global Transformation, History, Modernity, and the Making of International Relations. Uh, so final, so final uh, formalities. Uh, after we have these lectures, there's going to be a discussion. There'll be a chance for you to ask questions. 
Um, there's also going to be a book signing outside uh, for some of the books that these authors have written. Uh, and while you're getting your book signed, you can pick up a glass of wine, pick up some pizza, so it's going to be a nice time. Uh, and those things are all for sale outside. So that's it. Uh, now I'd like to introduce our first speaker, uh, Professor uh, Michelle Barrett. Michelle. Right, well, thank you very much for that uh, very fulsome introduction. That was great. Um, and what uh, we're going to do is, Duncan and I did do a book on Star Trek, uh, which is being updated at the moment. But I'm going to talk about um, one of its sort of basic arguments. Um, and, uh, and then Duncan will um, go into you know, more up-to-date material, I think. So space travel is the contemporary equivalent of the exploration that underpinned what we now call modern societies. This exploration was, of course, the foundation of the colonial nature of these modern Western societies. But the exploration of the globe, historically paralleling the scientific revolution and understanding the place of the Earth in the solar system, was in itself a very important development. And it's important to emphasize that this was an exploration based on sea power. So space travel in Star Trek is an imaginative transposition of the period of early modern nautical exploration. The models, assumptions, techniques, culture, aesthetics, and principles of sailing have been written into space travel. The naval exploration of the globe was a crucial element in the development of modernity. So the conquest of the seas allowed the Western powers to define their superiority through other cultures. So the exploration of space, similarly, allows for a definition of that which is specifically human. Now, Stuart Hall expressed that in terms of the rest acting as the constitutive outside of the West. The West was only able to define itself by means of a contrast with inferiorized others. And space we say, and indeed we argued, functions metaphorically as the constitutive outside of the project to define humanity. And that such an enterprise should have trouble, as we very clearly see, negotiating the dangerous reefs of colonialism is hardly surprising. Now it's worth emphasizing the scale of Star Trek's borrowing from the nautical lexicon. Star Voyage might indeed have been a better title for the whole thing. The vehicles are star ships, part of a star fleet. The senior officers on board ships are captains, commanders, lieutenants. Admiral, admirals tend to be solidly at star bases or fleet command. The much-used number one, the captain's first officer, is based on the role of the first mate. Meals are eaten in the mess hall. Casualties are dealt with in a sick bay. Prisoners are put in the brig. The ship is navigated using a con and giving orders to a helm from a superstructure known as the bridge. To turn around, you give the order to bring us about from going about to change tack in a sailing ship. Records and diaries are not kept, but the captain's log and personal logs are. Starships do not park or land. They dock, and when they need repairs, they have them in dry dock. Space ships have port and starboard, they have bows and sterns. They have fore and aft. Quarters is a naval term, as are vessels and torpedoes, shore leave and battle stations. On a ship, you hail an approaching vessel, store your cargo, and remark the arrival of the captain on the bridge. 
Expressions used in Star Trek, such as make it so and Godspeed, are from naval use, though Janeway's do it is not to be found in the nautical direction. (laughs) The nautical metaphor, however, in Star Trek is so naturalised that it's technically now dead metaphor. We simply do not notice anymore. Some of Star Trek's vocabulary is slightly adapted from the original. The captain's yacht would have been the captain's barge. The away team is clearly a landing party. Shuttles have the same function as launches and so on. It's worth noting, I guess, that many expressions in common English usage have a sailing provenance to change tack or clear the decks or be in the doldrums, for instance. But the usage in Star Trek goes way beyond this. The NCC prefixing the various Enterprise ships stands for Naval Construction Contract. The attraction of the Age of Sail is felt very strongly by some key figures in the various series of Star Trek. In Explorers, Benjamin Sisko makes a solar sailor to reproduce the experience of sailing from ancient Bajor. Tom Paris is depicted as passionate about sailing and thwarted by his father from taking it up as a career. The episode 30 Days concerns his attempt to turn a space shuttle into a submarine. Picard has a model of a sailing ship among the indexical objects in his ready room. Some episodes have nautical titles, such as Tacking into the Wind or Rocks and Shoals. A trawl through the nautical dictionary is the best way to learn the meaning of many of the technical terms used in Star Trek. Some that appear to be invented for the phenomena of space are a revisit of older nautical expressions. The name of the ebullient Q has several histories, one being the Q ship, a trick used in the 1914-18 war when a British naval crew would take over and arm a merchant ship in order to decoy German submarines into gun range. Obviously, there's a great deal of present and future technical vocabulary, much of it invented for the purpose in Star Trek, However, the basic principles of the lexicon are not merely nautical, but specifically drawn from the age of exploration and conflict by sailing ship, the age of fighting sail, as it's often referred to. Now, an interesting question in thinking about this um, sailing legacy in Star Trek uh, is the question of, this is one of the things that we discuss, is the question of whether... In the literature around the sea, and indeed in these various um, stagings of uh, journeys through space, um, that whether there is a real physicality, a real presence of that element itself. And so if you look at histories, for instance, of write, sea writing, uh, they vary as to whether whether the, um, the sea is simply a, a road to where you're going or whether it's, um, it's an element that has um, important features to the story. In Star Trek, um, there's no cynicism about this. The sea of space takes on a beauty and a wonder of its own. The lavish nebulae and astronomical phenomena encountered are treated with much reverence. The mere sight of the Bajoran wormhole opening to admit a ship is often depicted as a moment of spiritual revelation and Starfleet crews regularly take detours to witness some dramatic stellar phenomenon at first hand. And indeed in one episode of Voyager, the crew is sent into deep depression by a vast expanse of 
uh, starless space. It's in the writing of Melville. In in the book, we actually discuss um, Conrad's uh, writing and Jules Verne's writing, but I'm going to talk a little bit um, now about uh, Melville because I thought it was um, perhaps one of the most sort of interesting connections that um, you can make. So trying really to build an argument that not, not only is Star Trek a transposition of this a very important period, a period of exploration and colonialism, colonial aggression in, in the maritime exploration by the Western powers of the world. That's, that's the model that is being built into um, Star Trek and one of its <coughs> original pitches. Uh, I mean, people are always commenting on this, original pitches, you know, um, Star Trek and the sort of wagon train and all that, but actually Hornblower in Space was a very important part of the original pitch and Hornblower in Space is actually what I'm suggesting to you here is, is what we have and it is very, it's very helpful to understand the politics around colonialism of Star Trek to, to think of it in that context. So I'm just going to say um, a little bit about Melville I'm okay for time, aren't I? Two, two or three minutes? Uh, sure, yeah. Yeah, okay. I think we're all right. So, so Melville is the author of Moby Dick, uh, popular American epic, and this iconic figure is significant for Star Trek. It turns out that Melville himself explains for us an important phrase in Star Trek, the captain's order, make it so... This is favoured by Captain Picard of the Next Generation series and is frequently used to bring into effect a suggestion made by someone else. Make it so is a hallmark of the weighty Shakespearean-trained British actor Patrick Stewart. It has proved so successful that it's now been taken as the title of a popular manual on how to be a successful leader in business. Make it so! Leadership lessons from Star Trek The Next Generation. <laughs> Now, according to Melville, actually, the expression originates in the conventions in which the absolute authority of a ship's captain extends even to ascertaining the time. He is lord and master of the sun. Melville paints an amusing picture in which the sailing master, whose job it is to observe these things, touches his hat and reports 12 o'clock to the officer on deck, who then charges a midshipman to go to the captain and humbly inform him of the respectful suggestion of the sailing master. Twelve o'clock reported, sir, says the middy. Make it so, says the captain. And the bell is struck eight by the messenger boy, and twelve o'clock it is. Well, in this instance, the general point is that the captain's authority was total. Melville's novel White Jacket is an account of a voyage he made in 1843-4 as an ordinary seaman on a U.S. Navy man of war. Reshipped for literary purposes as the Neversink, uh, this ship provides the basis for a detailed description of life at sea in this type of vessel, vessel, as well as an indictment of the brutality of naval discipline. The book examines the consequences of a system in which despotic power was a structural element. The point is that in these ships, the captain represents not merely the authority of the nation, he actually is that authority. 
These ships were out of touch with any superior authority, and therefore, as Melville put it, a ship is a bit of terra firma cut off from the main. It is a state in itself, and the captain is its king. It's important to stress that the model here is one where time and space have not been compressed as yet through modern systems of transport, and most especially communication. The out-of-touchness of the main players is crucial. In the Hornblower stories, in fact, there are frequent examples of the one. And there's one um, very interesting one where poor Hornblower finds that having overpowered an enemy ship at sea, he discovers that in the months he's been at sea, a diplomatic change has occurred, and the enemy in question is now an ally. And one of the early Star Trek scriptwriters explains how directly they saw the parallel between the earlier period of independent naval authority and the leader of the enterprise. And I'll just conclude with this quotation. The situation of this interstellar society is almost exactly analogous to the Earth of the 18th century. Because communications were so slow, an ambassador could be a particularly important individual. He was the arm and authority of his government. He was its voice. He was the man who determined and enacted the policies of his nation with regard to his specific area of authority. So I'm going to stop there, and um, Duncan will take us somewhere else. (laughs) (laughs) Our next speaker is uh, Duncan Barrett. The final line of Star Trek's original pilot episode, The Cage is one that would become ubiquitous throughout the various TV series and films that followed it. Instructing his crew to leave orbit of Talos IV, Captain Pike gives the order, engage. This evocative command resurfaces in the subsequent adventures of Captains Kirk, Picard, Sisko and Janeway. Along with Beam Me Up, Energize, Phasers on Stun and so on, it's part of what Janeway actress Kate Mulgrew calls the highly stylized language of Star Trek. By the time we reach the 2009 cinematic reboot of the original series, however, Engage has been uh, replaced by a very different expression, and one, in fact, borrowed from that other great American science fiction behemoth, Star Wars. In J.J. Abrams' reimagining, Captain Pike tells his helmsman, Maximum warp, punch it. (laughs) On one level, this change is characteristic of the shift in temperament we see more generally as Star Trek is reinvented in the JJ-verse, as fans call the alternate reality in which the current series of blockbuster movies takes place. In this futuristic, highly technologically sophisticated world, there's a surprising amount of fist-fighting, from a vicious barroom brawl in the 2009 film to a pair of scenes in the 2013 follow-up Star Trek Into Darkness in which first Kirk and then Spock pummel Benedict Cumberbatch's Khan with blow after blow to the head. The film could almost have been called Star Trek Into Next Week. But while the level of violence in these new movies is not matched by anything seen previously in Star Trek, the original Captain Kirk and his crew certainly knew how to handle themselves in a fight. William Shatner's acrobatic attacks, in which he would hurl himself at alien opponents, bouncing off walls and doors as he did so, are a highlight of many episodes. The barroom brawl in The Trouble with Tribbles, ostensibly a comedic episode, runs for over two minutes of screen time. 
This rough and ready quality of the original series was part of what the producers of Enterprise intended to get back to when they set their series 100 years before the adventures of Kirk and Spock. As one of the writers of the show, Chris Black, commented, they were hoping for a return to old-fashioned, two-fisted Trek before the sanitised and high-minded era ushered in by the next generation. So on one level, punching it has been a mainstay of Star Trek throughout its 50-year history, and although Captains Picard and Janeway might prefer to avoid a fistfight if at all possible, Sisko would have happily joined in with the likes of Kirk and Archer. Famously, he distinguished himself from his high-minded predecessor Picard when he punched the obnoxious Q in the face. On the other hand, Captain Pike's original command, Engage, the evocative turn of phrase employed by the majority of Star Trek captains, is, in a sense, Starfleet's guiding imperative. (coughs) Engaging is exactly what these crews are out in space to do, as the mission statement of the various enterprises has it, to explore strange new worlds, to seek out new life and new civilizations. In other words, to engage with what is out there. Throughout Star Trek, there's always been a tension between these two imperatives. Are Starfleet officers primarily explorers, whose goal is to forge meaningful links with alien cultures, or soldiers tasked with defending the Federation, if necessary, by force? This dilemma has exercised both writers and fans of Star Trek for decades. A recent episode of the popular Next Generation podcast, Earl Grey, part of the Trek FM podcast network, was devoted to a passionate argument between two of the hosts about whether Starfleet was a military or an exploratory organisation. Ultimately, no consensus on this could be reached. (laughs) Within the fictional universe of Star Trek, many aliens are similarly uncertain about the motives of the Federation crews they encounter. If Starfleet is so dedicated to peace, they ask, why are their ships armed to the teeth? This conversation, often repeated, is turned on its head, though, in an episode of Enterprise in which Degra, the Zindi scientist responsible for building a weapon to destroy Earth, expresses astonishment at the scientific capabilities of what he assumed must be a warship that's come to stop him. These scans are remarkably detailed for a military vessel, he tells Captain Archer, but the captain corrects him. Enterprise was designed to be a ship of exploration. Degra, who by now has decided to try and save Earth from his own weapon, tells the captain, if we're successful, it will be again. This refrain can be heard several times in Star Trek since the late 1990s. Can anyone remember when we used to be explorers? Captain Picard complains in Star Trek Insurrection when the Enterprise is ordered to go and mediate a territorial dispute. By this point, the Next Generation series, with its continuing mission to explore strange new worlds, had been off the air for almost half a decade, and the two series that had taken the Star Trek baton forward had both consciously sought to distance themselves from the mission of exploration. Deep Space Nine was set on a station that remained fixed in one location. Although the wormhole offered a limited chance to explore the Gamma Quadrant, the overall story of the series was much more concerned with traffic coming in the other direction. Voyager, meanwhile, took place in an uncharted region of space, but the principal mission of the ship was not to explore, but to get home. Like many of the characters at the start of Deep Space Nine, Janeway's crew hadn't chosen to be there. When longtime Star Trek producer Rick Berman first conceived the idea for Enterprise, it was in explicit opposition to the two previous series. I felt it was really important that we got back to basics, he commented at the time that we got back to where we had a crew that were doing exactly what they wanted to do, who were explorers, 
who had a captain who was an adventurer. In many ways, this is a fair description of Enterprise's first two seasons. But what Berman and his head writer, Brannon Braga, soon found out was that pure exploration didn't really work for a Star Trek show. To many viewers, Enterprise felt rather aimless, particularly since the prequel setting ensured that any major discoveries the crew made would be ones the audience already knew about. In its third season, Enterprise changed dramatically, with the devastating Zindi attack on Earth, an explicit allegory for 9-11, Archer and his crew were finally given a less nebulous mission, one which took them into an unprecedented season-long story arc with high stakes and an almost literal ticking clock. For many viewers, this was where Enterprise found its feet, and although the fourth and final season took on a much brighter and more optimistic tone than the third, this ship never did get back to exploring as Degra had promised. Instead, they were ordered by Starfleet to pursue escaped convicts, investigate an apparent terror attack, and shuttle diplomats to conferences, exactly the sort of missions that Kirk or Picard might have been given. Trip Tucker, the ship's chief engineer, may have asked resentfully, when are we going to get back to exploring? But few viewers would have agreed with him. A central theme in the later series of Enterprise is the way in which Archer is forced to remould himself as a captain in response to his changing mission turning away from the noble explorer that he says his father wanted him to be and becoming instead a military leader capable of doing the unthinkable to accomplish his mission. Controversially, Archer's actions during the Zindi storyline included both torture and piracy, activities not normally associated with a Starfleet captain. By the start of the fourth season, Archer has come to view his earlier self as hopelessly naive. He tells the captain of another Starfleet ship, the Columbia, which will soon be joining Enterprise out in space, that he was wrong to refuse extra weapons when he first launched. You'll spend a lot of your time boldly going into battle, he says grimly. Perhaps the naivety of Archer and his crew in the early series of Enterprise was a product of the naivety of the executive producers of the show, who believed that a mission of pure exploration could sustain a Star Trek series. Maybe they were taking the Enterprise's mission statement to explore strange new worlds too literally. A more accurate account of the activities of Kirk's vessel is actually given in an earlier draft of those famous lines. Assigned a five-year patrol of our galaxy, the giant starship visits Earth colonies, regulates commerce, and explores strange new worlds and civilizations. One of the greatest strengths of Star Trek is that it's a very adaptable format. From week to week, episodes can be played for comedy, tragedy, or romance. They can accommodate genres ranging from horror to police procedural to courtroom drama. As the Vulcans might say, infinite diversity in infinite combinations. This variety is part of what makes Star Trek so popular, and it's probably one of the reasons why big screen adaptations have not always been as successful as the TV shows, because it's hard to offer as much breadth in a two-hour story as you can in an ongoing episodic series. We can only hope that next January, when Star Trek returns to our TV screens after a 12-year absence, this variety will be part of the package. Too much punching it will result in action just for the sake of it, and many Star Trek fans would agree that this is exactly what's wrong with the current movie series. On the other hand, engaging alone, however well-intentioned, may not be enough to sustain a strong adventure narrative. Or to put it more in Star Trek terms... However the captain phrases the order, the ship is only going to reach warp speed if the perfect balance of matter and antimatter is maintained by a competent engineer. (laughs) 
Our next speaker is Professor Stephen French. Okay, uh, well, first of all, thanks um, to the organisers for inviting me, um, and thank you all for coming on a, a Friday night in London. I'm sure you've got a uh, well, huge range of other things to do. Um, so in my day job, as Brian uh, said, I um, teach and do research on the philosophy of science, which is basically, I mean, the core issue in the philosophy of science is uh, how does science work? And uh, what I thought I'd do today is illustrate that issue um, through, well, some aspects of that issue through uh, Star Trek. So one way of approaching uh, this issue might be, well, how does Star Trek portray science and scientists? Um, So you could begin with, you know, the logical, struggling with their, you know, uh, or struggling with their human side or trying to uh, uh, achieve humanity the all-too-human, as O'Brien and Bashir go off to uh, refight the Battle of Britain on the holodeck, the nicely balanced with um, Wes, uh, uh, Beverly Crusher, um, the obsessive, uh, the man whose you know, um, obsession with achieving a kind of machine consciousness <laughs> causes the death of, I think it's about 500 Starfleet personnel. He still gets an institute named after him. So, <laughs> um, And then, of course... Uh, Kilamar, who, uh, whose obsession with avenging the death of her son leads her to destroy the crystalline entity that Picard wants to study and communicate with. I'm actually not, I think that's actually an interesting way of approaching the topic. I'm not going to do that, I'll just leave that out there for someone else to take <laughs> up. Um, what I'm going to do is look at instances of the scientific method that crop up in the various. Um, uh, uh, series. Um, he's a, these are some examples. I just culled these from the you know, Memory Alpha uh, wiki. Um, there's a nice one here where um, in Deep Space Nine, where they've all been poisoned, and Bashir discovers the antidote, and Kira asks him, How do you know? And he says, Rather pompously, scientific method. And then says, no, actually, I took a guess. Um, <laughs> but of course, guessing and, and hunching and making hypotheses is all part of the scientific method. More interestingly, um, in, again in Deep Space Nine, uh, Maura Paul is, um, well, studying Odo again, making Odo very uncomfortable, and uh, Paul talks about, well, compares what he does in science with what uh, Odo does in his sort of police work and his investigative work. That's a common theme. You actually find that in many reflections on the scientific method. The scientific method is akin to what Sherlock Holmes uses, for example. And of course, we all know the several episodes in which Data gets to dress up. Um, and I'm sorry, he's kind of obscured here as Geordie as, as Dr. Watson uh, behind him. But there's actually two um, episodes where uh, the scientific method is discussed, really, uh, or presented in much more detail. Um, the second, perhaps, even more than the, the first. Um, and the first one I want to mention is the, the inner light from Next Generation. Um, this is, for me, anyway, it's one of those episodes that I sort of never forget. Um, it's a very poignant episode. Um, it won, I think, I think, one of the only two Hugos, Star Trek episode. Um, has ever won. Um, and the storyline um, is basically... It's very, it's, it's very much a sort of Picard-oriented episode. 
the Enterprise discovers a probe out in space. Um, there's a beam that comes from the probe, and it hits Picard. And in 25 minutes of ship time, he lives the entire lifetime of a scientist on a planet. And it's a very sad story because the star, uh, the local star, is giving off increasing amounts of radiation, and life on the planet is gradually dying, and there's no hope. Um, and they don't have the technology to escape. All they can do is build this probe and send it up with the memories uh, of this scientist in the hopes that you know, what uh, uh, will happen doesn't, you know, actually happens. Um, and in the, together in the probe, when they examine the probe, there's this strange flute, and Picard remembers the tune the scientist had learned to play and plays on this tune. It's a very poignant tune, and this... Um, has been reproduced in musical works, apparently. It's a very touching, very sad um, episode. And there's this exchange between the scientist, uh, Camion, and his daughter, Meribor, and she says, this isn't a, just a long drought, is it? Silent. She says, I have entries in my log that go back 10 years. You have data that precedes that by 15 years. You've reached the same conclusion. I know you have. And then, oh, sorry, there's a, a crucial... <laughs> I haven't reached any conclusion. A good scientist doesn't function by conjecture. Now, we should pause, because in case we hear anything, because the sound we might hear is the sound of a very famous LSE professor, Sir Karl Popper, spinning in his grave, because he <laughs> insisted that science does work by conjecture. He, in fact, insisted that science should work by the process of what he calls conjecture and refutations, the title of one of his most famous uh, books. Um, and Popper would have rejected this account of the scientific method, that science works by accumulating data over many long years and then um, uh, finally coming, hopefully, to some conclusion. Meribor scripture says unfazed by her father, says no, a good scientist functions by hypothesizing and then proving or disproving that hypothesis. Again, Popper would have said you can never prove a hypothesis but you can always disprove it. That's the refutation side of his account of the scientific method. Science works, according to Popper, by uh, coming up with these bold conjectures then trying to refute them, if it refutes them, goes on to come up with another bold conjecture, and so it goes on. Here we have Star Trek presenting this alternative view, perhaps the more common view, that science proceeds by making uh, these careful observations over many, many years, um, and then perhaps at the end coming up with a hypothesis that is then proven or, or disproven. I'm not going to go, I mean, you know, if this were my... my uh, 101, you know, intro level philosophy of science class, I then invite you to discuss those alternative views, and share, but we don't have time uh, for that. I will say that this episode reflects a very uh, well-known episode in the history of science. Um, who's, anyone know who that gentleman is? Sorry? Speak up at the back! Yeah. Jenna, yes. And why has he sat in front of the, or stood in front of the bucolic landscape? Why are there cows there? You what the artists liked cows? I mean, we do, but I mean, why? Why? And the crucial, sorry. Yeah, but why smallpox? What's it got to do with cows? 
What's the, what's the crucial word I'm looking for? What did Jenna come up with? Vaccination. Yes, back at from Cal. So, yes, now this usual story is precisely that story from Trek that Jenna noticed that cow maids, uh, milk maids, um, did not seem to get smallpox as much as other people. And he made many, the story goes, the usual story, he made many observations over many, many years, and he came to the conclusion that cowpox, which the maids regularly uh, got from the cows, provided some immunity from uh, smallpox, and he decided or uh, concluded that if you could um, inject people with forms of cowpox, you could give them immunity to smallpox, leading to this famous Gilray cartoon where people are being injected and cows are growing out of their noses and their arms. Um, well, I mean, you know, genetically modif- modified um, uh, viruses being introduced into the population. Um, now, that's not really... So it might seem like the first part of the, the Star Trek story, making lots of observations. Um, that's actually not the complete story. It's actually, for many people, not the most important um, aspect of the Jenner story. Um, uh, because, for example, farmers, Dorset, a Dorset farmer, I can't remember his name, had already made that observation. Already, people already knew that cowpox conferred some immunity from smallpox. And, of course, people knew, people in China and in the Muslim world had known for many years that if you take scabs, smallpox scabs, and grind them up, take the pus, grind it up, and then, excuse me, blow it up the nose of someone, there's a good, well, there's a reasonable chance, not a good chance, that they will survive the next smallpox attack. What Jenna did that was important was what Meribor talks about. He hypothesized that cowpox uh, confers immunity to smallpox. And what he did... He took a small child, a boy, and he vaccinated him. And then he exposed that child to smallpox. And the child survived. I suspect you would not get that past the ethics committee <laughs> these days. But he hypothesized and he, to a certain extent, and we can debate whether this constitutes proof, he showed his hypothesis was correct. He showed it was true. So, in that respect, I think that Trek episode is reflecting this, this, you know, uh, uh, those features of this episode of the history of science. Here's another episode where it's even more explicit from the title, from Voyager. It's called Scientific Method. This episode, interestingly, this episode is co-written by a guy with. I hope if, he's, if he listens, if this is podcasting, if he listens to, it, I hope he's not going to be offended. And he's got a great Star Trek name. His name is Harry Claw. Right, K-L-O-O-R. Um, he's called Doc Claw. Why is he called Doc? As his website and wiki page and IDMB page all say, very prominently, he has two PhDs. I think he's known as the only person in the world who simultaneously got two PhDs, um, one in physics and one in chemistry. Um, he's really bright then, so he, write, and he writes science fiction... He's also devilishly handsome, so, you know, I hate him uh, already. And he wrote this episode, and it's a a very nice example of another feature of the scientific method. And in in this episode, Voyager, they're um, close to this binary star. It's giving off some odd radiation. And I don't know if you can... This is a poor reproduction here. But strange things happen. 
Janeway starts suffering these terrible headaches, really crippling sort of migraine. Uh, Taurus and Paris. There's Taurus. Can't see it very well, I'm afraid, because the lights. There's Paris. They sneak a kiss, and Taurus says, oh, I feel like someone's watching me, and the viewer sees this scan. <coughs> Chakotay starts ageing. His hair falls out, and he starts ageing uh, quite rapidly. Something odd is going on. There's this strange phenomena. And they speculate, perhaps it's the effect of the stars. There's some odd radiation, but they can't detect anything. Eventually, Torres and the emergency medical hologram, um, looking more concerned than his usual sarcastic self, perhaps, start to figure out there's something else going on. And they examine the DNA, and they notice there's this alien sort of signature in the DNA. Torres, who could have put this into Chakotay's cells without his knowledge? Let me try a compositional analysis. Some tech jargon there. Slide under the microscope. It's in Mr. Neelix's DNA as well. Neelix is turned into another <coughs> form of alien. Is this what's causing the mutations, asked Torres. A good, says emergency medical hologram, a good scientist never jumps to conclusions, Lieutenant, but I'd say it's a distinct possibility. <laughs> and they discover, of course, that there are these aliens, the EMH suspects there are these aliens on board, and this is a nice touch. He modifies, remember uh, Voyager, you've got Seven of Nine, she went on to star in various American legal dramas, the actress, um, Seven of Nine, who's part Borg, um, and he adjusts her Borg implants so that she can see the aliens and she notices there are these aliens everywhere. They're manipulating Janeway's head. She's got all these spikes coming out of her head. That's what's causing the headaches. And she fires, you know, her, uh, uh, you know, uh, she stuns one of the aliens. Uh, they become uh, obser- visible. And Janeway grabs him and says, um, you know, what are you doing? And the alien says, look, I'm doing what you guys have always done. I'm experimenting on another species. You've done this on animals, on other humans, um, and we're doing this to learn more um, so we can improve our own understanding of genetics. Janeway says, this isn't self-defense, it's the exploitation of another species for your own benefit. My people decided a long time ago that was unacceptable, and she um, threatens to fly the uh, fly Voyager into the heart of the star and kill them all if the aliens don't uh, leave. And they do. The episode is really about um, uh, well, animal experimentation and human experimentation. It's about you know, the ethics of animal experimentation. I'm not going to talk about that because I don't really do ethics. What I am going to talk about <laughs> is uh, what is this an example of it when it comes to the scientific method? It's an example of something that Brian and I like to call, the, in fancy terms, inference to the best explanation. It's what scientists often do. You have some odd phenomena, some striking phenomena. You try and explain it. You find the best explanation, and you say, and the best, there's a lot of debate, a lot of discussion about what constitutes best, but <clears throat> however you cash that out, the best explanation is the most likely to be true. Right? So given the evidence and candidate hypotheses that explain that evidence, choose the hypothesis that best explains it. The evidence here, Torres feeling she's being watched, Janeway's headache, rapid aging, needing to becoming a Mylian, a scan of Chakotay's DNA. Candidate hypotheses. One is they explore, they speculate. Maybe it's this pulsar, this binary star that's causing it. 
or maybe uh, it's these alien experiments. The best explanation is the alien experiments. They then test the hypothesis. The doctor, the EMH, tests the hypothesis by adjusting seven of nine's optical implants, and the explanation is confirmed. She fires her phaser, makes the aliens visible. This is a common mode of inference in the scientific method, particularly when you're dealing with the unobservable. Usually not aliens, usually things like elementary particles and uh, genes and so forth. Here's another example, uh, a a fairly obvious one, the discovery of Neptune. Um, Evidence, here I'm going to have to be a little bit careful how I pronounce this, discrepancies in the orbit of Uranus as described by Newton's laws, right? So they noticed that Uranus, as it's moving along its orbit, the discrepancies, Newton's laws, don't seem quite right. Possible explanation, Newton's laws are wrong. But these are Newton's laws! Newton! Right? They've never been wrong before. Better explanation, there's another planet out there that's disturbing the orbit of Uranus, and that hypothesis was subsequently confirmed. It's a nice example of this, of sort of, you know, Sorry, I shouldn't get involved in the EU debate, should I? But it's a nice example because you've got Adams in Great Britain uh, noting these discrepancies, Le Verrier in France noting them, and then I can't remember his name, but it was a German uh, astronomer who actually confirmed the observation. Inference is the best explanation. So just to wrap up, um, what I'm interested in, actually, in, in, in general, is how science is portrayed in science fiction. It's perhaps not surprising that those writers who have a background in science or who understand science quite well tend to present it in terms that the philosopher of science can readily grasp and, and, and relate to how we understand science. H.G. Wells in, in his Island of Dr. Moreau, nice example of conjectures and refutations there. James Blish, this is a wonderful book, A Case of Conscience. He was a, a biologist. Um, nice example of what we call verificationism. Anything that can't be verified in principle is meaningless. And then you have other examples. And I think one can raise further issues, further questions, whether in Star Trek um, and these other examples, whether these cases are simply reflecting the scientific background of the authors or the culture of the times, or even perhaps, as in uh, Levinson's case, the influence of the philosophy of science. Okay, I need to wrap up. I didn't get it together to bring any books, right? So are my (laughs) publishers really furious with me? Um, I do have a book on the philosophy of science called Philosophy of Science Key Concepts. It's published by Bloomsbury, so, you know, me and J.K. Rowling, you know, like that. It's available at all good bookstores um, and even the bad ones like Amazon. So I'll leave it there. Thank you. Our final speaker is Professor Barry Buzan. Right, well, I took the, uh, the remit fairly literally. Uh, in other words, what does Star Trek tell us about the world? And I'm going to look at three different aspects of that. I'm going to look at what it tells us about international relations, uh, and the answer to that is not very much. What it, <laughs> what it tells us about the United States, and I think there's some interesting things there, and then I'll, I'll wind up with what it tells us about forecasting the future. In terms of international relations, uh, I think Michelle's quite right that it has a kind of 18th century feel about it. Any of you who have both watched Voyager 
and read the diaries of Captain Cook. Anybody else in the room other than me who've done both of those? one will have noticed a considerable similarity um, in, uh, in, those two, uh, in those two things. So Star Trek is about international relations as it once looked. It's full of empires. It's got wars and alliances and diplomacy and uh, uh, strategic concerns about strategic resources and all of that kind of stuff. It has a broad norm of coexistence, which is to say that people want to get along a bit, but not, to, but not too much. There's also, uh, there's also competition there. Um, in, in one sense, the, the only interesting thing about it um, is that the prime directive, as my colleague Ivor Newman pointed out some years ago, does give an interesting insight into the conditions of diplomacy because it basically says the Federation will not have diplomatic relations with anybody who doesn't have warp drive technology. So it sets a technological standard for who you talk to. Okay? And we do too in, in regular diplomacy, although we don't actually admit that. But if you look at the history um, of the various encounters between uh, Europe and the rest of the world, that kind of technological standard was very much implicit um, and indeed had the name of the standard of civilization uh, in many respects. I think the other kind of peculiarity, um, to pick up Michelle's point again about the 18th century, is that uh, in common with a lot of other science fiction, um, Star Trek finds it completely unproblematic to have high-tech civilizations in agrarian political forms. Right? So you get lots of empires and such like out there and kings and, and, and all of that sort of stuff. And I mean, hello? <laughs> it's as if there's no correlation at all between the technological advancement of civilization and the political and social forms that they take. Uh, but that, I suppose, can't be blamed on Star Trek because it's pretty common to uh, a great deal uh, of science fiction. So really, in relation to, um, to international relations, the interesting thing about Star Trek is that it, it isn't like much of the rest of science fiction, which tends to focus on kind of zero-sum games, like ants versus termites. I mean, starting with H.G. Wells and the War of the Worlds. Nobody's talking to the other side here. It's just, you know, we, we're going to exterminate you, and that's... That's it. So it's just a war of extermination. There's no diplomacy. There's no subtlety. There's no nothing to it. Wars of extermination like that are not all that common um, in human history, and they probably wouldn't be all that common in, uh, in a galactic history if we had one. So Star Trek was grown up. It presented a world that you could understand and that was a real world, even if a rather old hat one, um, in the sense that it, it hadn't tried to... to put together the idea of technologically advanced civilizations and what sort of social and political forms they might take. And that takes me to my second theme, which is, of course, what does it tell us about the United States? Because basically Star Trek, especially in its earlier um, iterations, was all about projecting uh, the liberal image of the United States at that time in, uh, in the 1960s. So in this sense, Star Trek becomes a model of America as the kind of universal uh, uh, ideal type for the good society. So it's multi-ethnic, it's tolerant, it's technologically progressive, it's enthusiastic about technology, it's democratic, and it's completely confident that it owns the future. And, and this, I think, um, is a very powerful expression of, of America at that time. If you take a feminist view, uh, it gets a bit difficult because Star Trek sort of 
got caught in some kind of halfway house in relation to feminism. So half of the women there are very liberated types, officers on deck and all of that, Janeway being perhaps the most uh, prominent of those, and the rest are sex objects, right, uh, that flirt with, uh, with Captain Kirk and, and, and various others. So they really never got that together very well uh, and got sort of stuck in, in a halfway house. But given that this is, in a sense, representative of the very self-confident America um, uh, and the very self-righteous America uh, of the 1960s, there are two oddities about it that don't fit with the America of that time. One is that um, capitalism, if I can call it that, uh, is kind of held in slight contempt. Um, It's represented mainly by the Ferengi, who are a kind of parody of the capitalist type, greedy and grasping and criminal and crooked in all of their, uh, in all of their dealings. Um, there's no money to speak of in Star Trek. And the basic premise is uh, that society, civilization, has solved the problem of production. And therefore, all of that stuff about economics that we suffer with has just disappeared. There's nothing about economics um, in Star Trek at all, except for occasional concern about Uh, strategic resources, as I I mentioned before. The other oddity, given that this is an American production, um, is that religion is either conspicuously absent or again held in faint contempt as being something um, slightly archaic and a bit primitive. And that, I'm not quite sure how that comes about in Star Trek, but it's quite quite noticeable uh, in, uh, in the early versions of it. Okay, so... Now, the interesting bit, what does it tell us about forecasting the future? I want to look at three, uh, three elements here. Um, I want to look a bit about society, a bit about the way it sees crises, and then a bit about its technology forecasting. In terms of, of society, um, Star Trek probably gets it right in the sense of it represents a multiracial society. Um, and I think it does a pretty good job of that, and it was quite a, a brave thing to do at that, at that time. It is, however, and, and this takes me back to the, uh, the American part of it, it's much more ambivalent about whether this is a multicultural society uh, or basically a hegemonic view of Americana with everybody having become uh, uh, American, that confidence in, in, owning, uh, in owning the future. But I think the big miss uh, in Star Trek is that it simply assumes that getting out into space is not going to be controversial um, amongst the human species. And uh, science fiction, uh, uh, other science fiction, uh, sees this as a problem. Um, To put it it simply, the, the assumption is that Um, there's going to be a big political divide somewhere down the line um, about those who are keen and spending a lot of money going into space and those who think it's a waste of money. Uh, My mother was a great archetype uh, of of the latter. She was an earth-firster and could not imagine why it was a good idea to spend billions of dollars putting people on the moon or exploring the planets or anything like that when we had so many problems here on which, you know, why not more money on hospitals and blah, 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 blah. Um, That kind of argument, uh, it seems to me, is completely missing in Star Trek. It's just, you know, we we go out there and that's the natural thing to do. Uh, So it buys into the frontier myth without ever questioning 
the, that kind of political divide which is likely to be created here. Um, it's the lure of the new frontier attitude, and I suppose that also is in a, in a curious way particularly American. If we look at its attitude towards crises, um, there's very much of an emphasis on, on the political here. Um, I mean, in a sense, there's a World War III in, uh, in Star Trek, and you know, around the time that we're living in now was obviously a, a pretty turbulent time um, in the Star Trek version of human history. So there's an assumption that these kinds of big wars might be, uh, might be possible. There's nothing about economic crises at all, uh, because the economic problem has disappeared in Star Trek with, uh, with replicators and all of that. And there's nothing about environmental crises. So our present worries about all of that sort of thing are just not there. Um, everything is assumed to be fixable with technology. And if we look at the, uh, the Star Trek uh, uh, technology, I mean, this is an aspect of Star Trek that's got quite a lot of attention. I mean... Uh, I have to take out my display here. I mean, the, the, the idea of communicators, we've all got one now. Um, the idea of tricorders, well, almost, <laughs> in the sense of all of the things that, that these things do. So that's attracted quite a lot of attention. The idea of replicators, well, if you think that that's where 3D printing is going, then that also seems to be a fairly plausible uh, uh, prediction. Phasers may be a bit further down the line, but there's beam weapon research going on around the place that make that plausible. Um, shielding, again, kinds of developments in uh, electromagnetic fields and all of that that make that, uh, uh, make that plausible. Transporters, probably not. Um, warp drive, probably not, or at least way, 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 way uh, down the line. But when you think of where we are now and the sort of things that we are thinking of in terms of uh, likely major technological developments, uh, there are two things about which Star Trek is completely silent. Um, the first one is about computers and artificial intelligence. I mean, <laughs> the computers in Star Trek are about as smart as Siri. Um, I mean, they're just kind of tinny voices attached to computers that speak in a funny way and will answer a question. Well, we can do that. Uh, we can do that already. And this is kind of hundreds of years ahead. So they have missed um, a really big trick here. There's no sense um, that we are heading towards a singularity where in a few decades' time, as some people think, we might have computers around that are as intelligent uh, as we are and then rapidly more intelligent than, uh, than we are. Data, um, who, I mean, he's the kind of Spock substitute for the, the, cold, the cold logic man in the, in the series, but he's very much seen as a one-off or sometimes a two-off because they occasionally find a brother and other bits and pieces of him. But, but he's not a mass-produced thing, right? He's some kind of strange singular thing, not a phenomenon uh, that can be, uh, uh, can be replicated and, and made many of them. To the extent that, uh, that the Enterprise and the other uh, starships encounter computer-controlled societies, these are always seen as dead ends, right? kind of somehow dead, static, and, and the mission of the Enterprise is to break that uh, and let the people free, uh, as it were. So there's a sense in which uh, Star Trek just doesn't get at all um, the possibility of sentient computers or computers that are in some uh, a variety of ways more intelligent than we are. 
And that kind of counterpoints, in a sense, the other missing scientific bit in Star Trek, um, which is that uh, biotechnology doesn't seem to have happened um, anywhere. Uh, Star Trek is all about, as it were, Mark I human beings. Um, They've not been improved at all. Uh, There's only a kind of slight hint of this, the eugenics wars of the late 1990s, I think they were, um, Khan in the original series and, uh, and, and the movie. Um, but this is seen as a kind of aberration um, and, and something that was simply suppressed and uh, uh, put out of the way. There's no sense here um, of the possibilities of, uh, of uh, biological self-evolution of the species or adaptation for space travel. Uh, nothing of that is there. We're hundreds of years in the future and we're still the Mark I human being. In this sense, um, the the series has lacked imagination and of course uh, that helps with its production cost because if you had to have superhuman beings or adapted human beings, uh, the the special effects departments down here would have more work to do. So, um, to to wrap up, um, Star Trek doesn't tell us much about international relations. In fact, international relations tells us more about Star Trek. Um, It doesn't tell us all that much about our future on what seem to me to be the big issues. Um, It's an interesting way of looking at the USA as kind of pop culture uh, interpretation, but I think as I wrote um, in the the article that uh, was mentioned earlier, that Battlestar Galactica now tells us more about America than, than Star Trek does. So why am I interested in it? It seems to me that its enduring value is that it's a very powerful vision. Um, It was outward-looking. It was enthusiastic about exploration, despite all the difficulties of selling uh, exploration, and and thought that the risks uh, of exploration were worth taking. Um, It was humanistic. It was progressive. It was basically optimistic. um, And it was tolerant of differences. The other odd, odd thing about it, which I haven't quite got my head around yet, is that it's also extraordinarily tolerant of disobedience. Disobedience is practically a fetish in Star Trek, um, uh, particularly James Kirk, of course, but also some of the other, even Spock um, on occasion is, uh, is disobedience. And this is, a, this is an oddity, but it did for me raise the interesting question of when do you disobey? Um, in deference to what kind of higher principle do you disobey? Uh, this was this uh, question plays through quite a lot of, the, of, of episodes. It seems to me that uh, disobedience of any kind on a warship is a questionable, uh, a questionable thing because uh, a hierarchy of command is necessary for the safety of all um, on this. But on the other hand, disobedience in relation to uh, totalitarian societies may, uh, may have more to, to recommend it. And it made you think about this. So for me, Star Trek made me uh, a space cadet. So I've been keen about uh, getting out there and doing all of that. Um, The vision inspired me, and I am forever grateful to Star Trek for that. Thank you for listening. All right. We have time for questions, about 20 minutes. Uh, so go ahead and raise your hands for questions, and I'll, uh, I'll, we'll take um, a few at a time. So if everyone, go ahead and raise your hands now. Uh, yeah, I'll start with you, please. Oh, I'm fine. 
I think it promotes racism, sexism, anti-Semitism in a very big way, and so powerfully that it's so intimidating to watch it if you're, say, 15, 16, even 23, or, or, but if you are an adolescent, it's an extremely intimidating show. It makes you feel completely subordinate and uh, browbeaten, I guess is the word for it. Spock with those dreadful eyebrows. I've never seen. I've never seen such an anti. Even the Nazis were not quite so overt with Peter Lorre. I mean, this is dreadful. Um, the only oddity I found was that the Shatner, Bill Shatner's character, who was sort of uh, look seems to me to be Eastern European, was not a wasp. I don't know why they didn't put Troy Donahue or Robert Redford in that role. <laughs> Uh, thank you. Can we please uh, pass, if you could pass the, uh, the microphone to the gentleman uh, in the middle there who also had his hand raised. So we'll just take two questions at once and then we'll, yeah, that's you, yeah. Crikey, I don't know how to follow that. <laughs> <laughs> I think um, I, there, there was some points earlier on about sort of uh, following on from obviously the nautical colonial experience. And um, yeah, for me, Star Trek has always been about this kind of colonialism idea. And um, I think there's, there's a lot of, uh, in terms of the value systems, they're very progressive, they're a very futuristic, great society, they've solved lots of problems, but they always encounter lots of these alien races. And the question is, they always seem to be superior to these alien races that they encounter. Um, we encounter civilizations that have technical technological superiorities, but they're always somehow sort of inferior to, uh, you know, Picard and his crew or, or, or Kirk. Um, and even when they do encounter a, a species that is vastly superior, obviously, like Q, um, that species sort of holds humanity in special place because somehow we're, you know, special in the universe. <laughs> and I just don't know, uh, what do you think about that? <laughs> All right. Anybody in the panel like to take either of these two questions? So I, I'm, I'm kind of nervous about taking the, the, the first one. I mean, I disagree. I mean, look, first of all, we have to... Okay. Both the points, actually, I think, are you know, reasonable uh, points that to Markham's one can give. Of course, you have to remember, right, this, A, the original Trek is of its time, as Barry pointed out. B... Let's ignore the movies. These are TV shows, right? So there, there are certain limitations. So take your point. Um, it's going to be hard to make a good drama out of encountering a race that's just better than us. Because <laughs> then you're just going to go, <laughs> take us over. Yeah, you can, you know. There's not going to be, the tension isn't going to be there. I do think, and my favourite Trek series is Deep Space Nine. And even though... You know, it has its drawbacks. I do think it dealt with some of these issues. It did anguish a little bit over the colonial aspect. Um, it did present the whole, you know, um, uh, Bajoran, you know, Cardassian um, conflict in a certain way that I thought, you know, at the time I thought it was, you know, very interesting and very interesting for Trek to show that. It didn't seem to me to portray all the aliens that it encountered as necessarily inferior to us. 
right? There were sort of even the you know even the Ferengi were shown to have actually a complex uh, society, sort of what we might call redeeming features in various ways. So I, you know, I take your point, but I do think as it as the series progressed, some of the you know concerns that you have for me anyway diminished. Certainly the early Trek, yes, this is projection of American power, late 60s, a sort of liberal, you know, secular, it's, you know, everything that we would have concerns about, this is the superior civilization going out to tame the galaxy. I think as it developed, it lost some of, some of that. For me, it became a lot more interesting, perhaps less so with after Voyager, but certainly in Deep Space Nine, I thought it was a lot more interesting. Yeah. Um, just to come in on the second question, that um, I mean, I was thinking while you were sort of talking about it that uh, you know one of the things, or one of the things um, that we've written about is that w- what's going on is an absolutely relentless posing of the question: is what does it mean to be human? Mm. And, it, and as you say, mm. human, Mark One, and it it sort of stands in for um, those those colonial issues because it's just taken for granted that the, the human is what we all care about and what's important. And th- those questions about, in, you know, inferiorizing alien races and so on, they're, they're certainly absolutely there. And that's what I was trying to get at, was that it's very paradoxical that they have this sort of multiracial crew and so on. It's so progressive in, in terms of the original series when it was... Um, you know, put together, but but in fact, the the sort of colonial politics of it, which are all staged in terms of this question about what does it mean to be human and why are, why are we humans so much nicer than everybody else? Um, it's very difficult to ignore that if you're thinking about it in the colonial framework. One other yeah. thing, oh, I was just just a small point. I, this is slightly tangential to what you're saying, but one of the things that I thought was quite nice about the way in the final series of Enterprise there's a lot of kind of tying up loose ends fan Mm. service uh, Mm. you know kind of trying to draw it back into canon and some of that personally I find a bit um, it's almost being done for the sake of it but one of the things I thought was quite interesting is there's always been this question in Star Trek why are the humans at the centre they've got this huge federation why is it as uh, one of the Klingons says in one of the films the Homo Sapiens Only Club why are they always at the top why are they in charge and they do in Enterprise they sort of come up with a surprising answer for that which is essentially that, uh, that the humans don't really have any quality that makes them it's not necessarily superior to any of these other species they're forming this coalition with. It's just that they happen not to have fallen out. They, they, all of the other ones hate each other so much. The humans are just in this position where they can kind of be a go-between because they haven't yet fallen out spectacularly yeah, yeah. with any of the other species. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so that, then that pushes them into this kind of position of being in the middle, which I suppose is a kind of way around, a slightly unusual way of getting around that question in a way by saying it was this kind of coincidence almost. I mean, I think aside from the intrinsic interest of the what does it mean to be human question, which I agree plays strongly throughout, there's also the the kind of the problem for the writers in this, that they've got to have some kind Mm. of drama. They are sending humankind out into a galaxy which is hugely populated with all sorts of creatures, some in lesser states of development and some have already sublimated up to some higher level uh, of existence. Almost the only way in which you can make that work uh, is by giving the humans some intrinsic, interesting quality. Even if they're technologically inferior, they're still able to cope and add something out there. If you didn't have that, I mean, the whole dramatic structure of the thing would be flat. 
And you've got to do it in an hour. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's take, uh, let's take a few more questions then. Let's see. Uh, I saw your hand and then there in the back after. So we'll start with you, please. Yeah. Yes, I would uh, go beyond the colonial uh, um, outlook because uh, uh, there is a, uh, a quote by the uh, Nobel uh, Literary Prize winner, it's uh, the Italian poet Montale, that says, uh, uh, all we can tell is what we are not and uh, what we do not want. So... You know, following Sagan, also in contact, we can think that uh, meeting the alien means uh, actually having a way of meeting the human. So in this, from this point of view, uh, I would say that it would be inevitable, with the humans being so tribal, that uh, the only way to actually explore humanity in full would be to discover some alien species and find out what we, we are not. The other thing I would like to ask is... Uh, uh, if we compare Star Trek to European sci-fi, especially you know going beyond uh, uh, the, the the British examples, uh, uh, I, I would uh, uh, you know at the same time as Star Trek, uh, Stanislaw Lem would write uh, stuff like Solaris or uh, Fiasco, where uh, the aliens are almost unintelligible, while in Star Trek the aliens are, uh, of course, also because it's a TV series, you know something that can communicate, we can communicate uh, with, and uh, it's a completely different uh, way of looking at, uh, at the aliens. Okay, if we can uh, just pass it around to the back. So uh, the gentleman in the grey sweater has his hand up. Yeah. Uh, thank you. I'd just um, like to ask the panel about their view on the Prime Directive. It seems to me that um, I look at Star Trek um, in, in a way that um, I like... Um, Star Trek as football, uh, Star Trek isn't Arsenal, you know, so, um, uh, so what I like to ask is when Professor Barrett was speaking about European ex maritime exploration, there was no prime directive. Uh, Columbus never had a prime directive. He never said, uh, they never, the, the King of Spain never said, if they've got guns, don't you... If they've got guns, you can make contact with them. Uh, it, it, in, in fact, quite the opposite was true. I think Columbus probably wouldn't have engaged with the Arawak if they'd have, been, uh, if they'd have had cannons. Um, it, it seems to me, then, difficult that um, we would then send uh, a spaceship out and say you can only talk to people who have the same type of technology as you. It seems quite dangerous and naive to do that, even with a modern perspective, and it always seemed to me that it was a very politically correct American way of seeing travel from the perspective of modernity rather than actually, oh, let's see if, for instance, they might not have warp capability, but they might be interesting in another way, so we could actually communicate them and learn something more about their way of life. Comments on these two questions? I'll kick on the, on the aliens one. I think that's a really interesting question. I think there are a number of science fiction books, I'm just trying to remember the titles, but where the alien is portrayed as truly alien, almost, it can't be completely intelligible because a book about something that's completely intelligible is not going to be a very, it's going to be a very difficult read. So it's just, I think the, the, the brilliance of Lem is that you get this sense of, you know, it's bizarre, it's really off this world. Um, the Tarkovsky movie of the... Um, Oh, 
Solaris. No, not Solaris. No, the other one. <laughs> you mentioned Solaris, is it? The, the, um, it's, it's the one... Sorry? That might, yes, that's it. Right, yeah, roadside picnic. That, you know, where you just get this sense of strangeness. It's almost horror. It's almost horror, but it's, you know, a, conveying that, I think, is, is brilliant. To do that, in, again, in an hour on an American TV show, um, you can see why, again, again my favourite is Deep Space Nine, but even I kind of wince a little bit. You know, the Bajorans just have a couple of nose ridges. It's like <laughs> they've run out of makeup at that stage. You know? I mean, conveying the alien, I think, is an interesting issue in science fiction in general, and you've got to get that balance. Too often, I agree, Star Trek, it's just a matter of sticking some bumps on your head, and there they are. I think in the best episodes and the best literature, they managed to do that in more subtle ways, conveying the sense of this, this is truly of, out of this world, yet still having interests similar enough that we can engage with them as the reader or the viewer. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. I think the, one of the best episodes there was the one about the Horta. Well, that was probably mm. about as different mm. as, as aliens ever got, the kind yep. of rock-burrowing... Yep. Uh, they, they thought they were rocks rather than living beings. So it did get a little bit uh, towards that side of things. But again, you have to remember back in those days, special effects were more expensive than they, than sure. they are yeah. now. So you know, the man in the rubber suit, as it were is basically the way you go for, for, sure. for, for aliens rather than anything more, uh, more exotic. Um, I think uh, on the question about, uh, about the prime directive, um, yes, it's true that, the, that the, uh, you know, our, our ancestors didn't go out there into the rest of the world with the prime directive. But again, if you, I recommend that you read the diaries of Captain Cook. I mean, he was you know, a good Renaissance man and he had internalized within him a kind of prime directive about how he dealt with the natives out there. That you know, he was not just looking to conquer because he needed to trade. Mm-hmm. Uh, because he was out there, like Voyager, he was out there you know, months and months of sailing time away from anything that he knew and needed supplies. So he had to trade, he had to get along with with people um, uh, as he went. So it was, in a sense, uh, it wasn't that there was no constraint or anything on, uh, on what those people were doing. But I think in the, uh, in the Star Trek side, the, 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 the diplomacy uh, cuts both ways. The prime directive says that the Federation <coughs> must not make diplomatic contact with anybody that doesn't have warp drive, and therefore you get a certain uh, uh, number of kind of anthropological uh, ventures where they're, they're observing primitive civilizations as it were without themselves being seen uh, but it also cuts the other way in the sense that the, the higher life form, the sublimated life forms that have gone into some non-material being they don't do diplomacy with those who are still whizzing around in spaceships either, so there's a kind of bandwidth to diplomacy at the bottom and the top Just on this uh Prime Directive issue. Um, first of all, I think it's established that it's actually the Vulcans who set up this rule, and that everyone yeah. else kind of goes along with it. So that that may have a, an element to it. But I think it's also said in the episode uh, First Contact, the TNG episode First Contact, that they the one reason they, they do these undercover things in, in that instance they are planning to make contact because they're at this technological point. I think 
uh, and they said that they've had bad experiences in the past where a species developed warp technology and then they met them in space and someone's ship got blown up or you, you know there's this kind of sense that this is a it's a dangerous environment it's actually safer to to go to their planet and try to have a kind of discussion with them where they feel more comfortable so in a sense that kind of technological barrier is not a philosophical thing really it's a kind they're sort of they're sort of saying if we we can't leave it past this point uh, we have to deal with it then and until we have to deal with it we're just gonna you know maybe we'll go and study them but the other thing is um we do see in in the film insurrection that they are doing precisely that thing they're they're using their duck blinds and they think they're studying a primitive culture and it turns out uh, I think sort of what you were saying there are other ways of measuring a culture this culture is not primitive at all they're just anti-technological and they, you know, they're actually very advanced but they've decided not to use technology in the way that would kind of register on the kind of scans that they're doing and they have actually made a completely false assumption about them that's a good point yeah yeah all right, uh, we have time for uh, two more. They have to be um, pretty brief questions. Okay, so uh, the, we'll start with the woman in the very back, <clears throat> in the back left. Uh, I actually just wanted to uh, talk about what you said about the disobedience in the fleet. Uh, as the daughter of a Navy man and a biochemist, I know something about that. And... <laughs> I always found the, the interesting thing my family about Star Trek was the finding the balance because, as we said before, they, no one in the fleet is really sure if they're a military institution or an exploring institution. So I think the disobedience was always a way to sort of deal with that insecurity that they have. Are we military? Do we have complete authority? Does the, is the captain God? Or are we explorers and scientists and therefore discuss everything before we take action? I think that's the way I always looked at it. Uh, and if you could uh, pass the microphone down to the, the woman here in the very front. <clears throat> um, th- this, this is a slightly different direction, but I always think of the famous Shatner um, appearance on Saturday Night Live um, at the Star Trek convention, where um, he's, you know, people are all looking at him adoringly in their, in their uniforms. And he stands very seriously and says, people, get a life. <laughs> <laughs> I just wondered how people who really love this feel about that. <laughs> Are you asking us what we're all doing here tonight? <laughs> <laughs> all right, anybody want to take a stab at these two? My wife says to, tells me that all the time. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, could, you can see how he would feel very strongly about that in the sense that, that you know, he, it's a kind of actor's problem that you get stuck in one role. Um, you will have no doubt noted the, the title of Leonard Nimoy's mm. autobiography, I Am Not Spock. <laughs> you know, there's, there's clearly a kind of reverse issue uh, uh, going on there. But I, I think on the question of disobedience... Um, a point, relevant point to make is, given the, the, the overall theme of this uh, literary festival, is that Star Trek is not in any way, shape, or form a utopia. Right? Um, so there's lots of, of difficult issues in, in there. I mean, there are secret service problems, there are plots, there's corruption in the Federation, blah uh, blah 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 uh, And all of these things have to be dealt with, in a sense, and that's what raises the disobedience issues in, in a variety of interesting ways. Um, I do think that's a, a nice... 
tension, uh, and, and I'd go back, in relation to your remark, I'd again go back to the, uh, the Captain Cook analogy, because it, it's very unclear. I mean, that's both a warship and an exploratory ship, and both kinds of things are, are in play there. Um, but, of course, you know, disobedience on a ship out in the middle of nowhere is a very serious problem. Right? So you basically have this tension between, on the one hand, the kind of de- democratic American ideals and, and, and you, know, you need to behave according to your principles, and on, on the other hand, the hierarchical needs of actually running a ship, you know, whether a warship or any other kind of ship. Basically, there has to be a chain of command, otherwise everybody is in danger. <laughs> All right. <laughs> well, on that final note, uh, <clears throat> uh, so thank you all so, uh, so much for coming. We hope you enjoyed the event. There's a lot more exciting events coming up tomorrow. I hope you come back. There's programs outside if you haven't gotten one already. I remember, there's copies of the panel's books available outside. There's drinks, there's pizza. Let's give them all a round of applause one more time.